Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a fantastic guest with us this week, Israeli journalist Ronen Bergman of The New York Times and Yediot Achronot. I'm sure all of you know his name, and if you don't know his name, then you definitely know his work. If a story appears about an Iranian nuclear scientist killed by a remote-controlled AI robot sniper, or a powerful cyber weapon hacking into people's phones, then you can be sure it likely came from Ronen. He's also, of course, the author of the seminal book on Israel's intelligence services, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. I spoke to Ronen about how he got into this rather shady beat, the main conclusions from his book, as well as the recent controversy over the Israeli cyberweapon firm NSO Group. This was a fantastic conversation, trying to shed some light on Ronen and his work, bringing it out of the shadows, as it were. Let's go. Hey, Ronen, thanks for coming on and taking the time to be with us today. Hi, Neri. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure. So, Ronen, I wanted to get right into it. Uh, as I've explained to our listeners in previous podcasts, there are all kinds of different types of journalists in Israel. You have military correspondents, political correspondents, diplomatic correspondents. But I think I can count on maybe two fingers the number of journalists here in Israel that are uh, national security correspondents that specialize, like you do, in the world of intelligence. So first off, take us back to the start of your career. How did you get into this line of reporting, this specific beat that's usually really kept in the shadows? Uh, did you plan it from the start? Well, I think you just answered the question because it's kept in the shadows. Um, well, I, I started writing for youth papers when I was um, 12 or 13. Hmm. Um, then, uh, just very coincidentally, uh, there was a very famous youth paper in Israel called Mariv Lanoir, and I heard that uh, uh, whoever wins the annual... Um, selection for being a youth uh, reporter gets a free a free uh, yearly subscription for Mariv Lanoir, uh, something that was not high priority for my parents to give me. So I said to myself, well, that doesn't need to be very difficult to get uh, uh, to win that, that competition. Um, and at that time, there was uh, in where I lived, it's a northern suburb of uh, Haifa, Kirat Bialik, it was uh, the illegal cable television that was run by mostly families from the uh, organized crime world or not not the semi-legal uh, um, activity and I said let's uh, I thought to myself it's going to be very interesting to first get to know who is behind this because it's you know it drive it drove everybody in a world with one TV station, one TV channel, people, uh, young people in Israel find it hard to imagine when we had only one national TV channel, uh, old um, and, and not very vibrant. Uh, so it drove everybody crazy. Everybody watched that. Uh, the rumors were they even uh, have adult movies uh, late at night. So I found a guy who was behind it. He, I think he was shocked to see that someone so young coming to... Uh, interview him and I got admitted and um, you know you, you probably know it yourself it's like an epidemic it, it takes you it grabs you journalism 
and it doesn't let it go. I was uh, planning to be an actor, a theater actor, <laughs> or a musician, uh, something that uh, I did for many years, but um, it just took over me. When I was 15, I decided I wanted to go to write for uh, for adults. I got admitted to, I was the last protege of uh, Uri Avneri at uh, Haolam Hazeh, the Israeli famous uh, left-wing uh, news magazine, weekly news magazine. And then uh, after finishing my military service, um, I decided to continue this while studying law. Uh, I didn't yet have the decision to stay. I decided I'm going to have um, some kind of academic uh, um, education and then uh, legal training. I did my internship with the Attorney General. But um, I looked for something for a realm of coverage that was not properly taken care of in Israel, that is important, that is interesting, and that is considered to be dangerous, hard, dodgy, secret. And when I started to cover the uh, Israeli intelligence community, a lot of people is, uh, told me, you should stay away. You know, you'll find yourself either in jail or in the gutter one day. And um, I think maybe this just encouraged me because of... Um, you know, just doing the opposite of what everybody told me, which was something that if my late mother would be present here, she said she would tell you now. Yeah, he was doing that. He was doing that even when he was seven years old. When he was told to do something, he did the opposite. <laughs> and and then I realized, and this goes much deeper into the 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 uh, I would say the ethical, the journalistic reasons to cover this realm. That especially in Israel, it's not just that. Those so stories are super, super interesting. Um, I have a friend, a very famous journalist in, in, in Germany, who says, in Israel, sorry for uh, using uh, a dirty word, the, the shit really happens, meaning the, the, the action really happens. And the intelligence community, the second in size, in total number in the West, only second to the American intelligence, not per capita, second in size. Absolute terms. In absolute terms, and, and it's taking actions, not just the collection of intelligence, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it's taking real action. So it's not just the action. It's not just the fact that Israel is, um, that the Israeli administration is dealing with not just the collection, but, act, but with actual kinetic operations or cyber operations, but it's also that I believe that you cannot understand the history of Israel or the history of the Middle East and when it's relevant, the history of the world without having a much better reading than existed back then. I hope now it's a little bit better. Of the secret history of the Israeli intelligence community. As much as you cannot understand, you can try, but you'll, you'll miss a major important part. You cannot understand the history of the Second World War without knowing what Alan Turing and his buddies from King's College have done in, uh, I'm mentioning uh, King's College from Cambridge because I'm uh, a local patriot of the university, uh, have done in, not far away from Cambridge, in, in, in Bletchley Park, in Station X, when they decrypt the Enigma machine. <laughs> right. Something that shortened 
the Second World War in at least two years. If you do not understand what happened there, not to say that he invented the first electronic uh, computer, um, you, you cannot understand the Second World War. So as much as that is true, then you cannot understand the history of Israel without understanding the impact, the involvement, and the, I would say the influence of the Israeli intelligence community on every major historical turn or decision-making process that happened after Israel was, was established. Their impact is profound. Now it's not about it's not it's not not all of them were uh, with glory. There were many failures and misconceptions, and sometimes when you look at it closely, you see that the Israeli uh, James Bond looks more like Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> but but whatever they did, it's important, and this is what I have been trying to do. In well, it's already the last thirty-five years. Wow, um, and and bring those stories and narratives to um, to my you know newspaper reports, uh, books, and now to the TV screen. And um, it's um, it's fascinating. And it was for me back then. It was like walking on uh, virgin territory nobody walked before and uh, i read when i was a kid that uh, people when people came to from russia they emigrated those jews uh, early 20th century or late 19th century they came to america with hearing that there is gold just on the streets waiting to be picked up so i i i i see the 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 territory of the history of uh, and the and the current events of of intelligence community in Israel as as this kind of territory just not with gold with stories they're just waiting there for you to come and pick them up so before we get into the actual history that you did write about the Israeli intelligence services and and their impact and influence i wanted to ask you to take us through your process on this very murky beat uh very basic question. How do you get people to talk about things that usually stay in the shadows? Uh, and also, how do you work in uh, a rather more complicated environment, say, here in Israel with uh, military censorship, uh, security services who may be trying to to stop certain reports and publications, uh, also foreign intelligence agencies who uh, may want to track you as well because of your work? So take us through, to the extent that you can, uh, how do you go about your work? So... Covering the the history and the current affairs of the Israeli intelligence communities is complicated as is complicated in many other countries. But there's there are significant, I think, two additional layers uh, that are um, I think relevant only to Israel. It's complicated because those people are trained to keep everything secret. And they are told that they, it's forbidden to tell you what they know. And if they do, then they are, or they might uh, um, face 
prosecution, interrogation, because those organizations have a tendency to keep everything in the twilight zone of, um, of uh, secrecy. And I think that in many of them, in Israel and, and in many other countries, the secrecy, while supposed to be just a tool to prevent knowledge from the um, intelligence services of the adversary, um, is becoming an issue by itself. People are iconing themselves, are uh, feeling important because of their ownership of information. And it's a, it's a psychological phenomenon that everyone who controls important information that nobody, nobody else has and feels powerful because of that is having a difficulty with let it go. Every organization would have a problem with, and every human usually have a problem, has a problem with giving away power that puts him in a in an I would say elevated position compared to others. Um, so those people, and in addition for being trained to secrecy, not telling anyone anything, they some of them or many of them are also the masters of disinformation, of manipulating people, of recruiting people. And now you take this, let's say, former or current case officer of the Mossad, who was turning people all his life. And they say about him, he's a legend. And they say about him that he could dub phone, phone uh, um, uh, polls, that he can, you know, he can get to anyone, he can recruit anyone, and not with threatening him, just with being nice, with working undercover and um, um, convincing that, that, that person. And you need to do to him what he has done to many others throughout his life, and also be aware that he might, while giving you information, try to manipulate you and give you the false one. So that that is a very that's a um, difficult challenge. Um, when I gave uh, the the manuscript to um, of the book, which we'll probably discuss a little later. To, to Random House, uh, the history, secret history of Israeli intelligence and Mossad, they were surprised because it ended up with a list of 1,000 interviewees. Some of them I met a few times. And many of them, many, many, many of them um, are um, speaking for the first time. And, and I asked, and they asked, of course, how, how could you do it? Like, why did they agree? So I, I would say that they, on, on one hand, there's the need to keep secret and the fear of being prosecuted for spilling the secret. But on the other hand, and there is an Israeli, you, you would understand that. In Israel, is a country where every, everything is secret, but everybody wants to talk as well. And, and I met with those people and they told me for the first time, some of them told me, listen, I'm... And, Throughout my career, not just for the book, but for my work, they tell me I'm telling you stories that I, I never told anyone, even not to my wife. Because they want people to know what they have done in order to keep Israel safe. It's a very important point. In Israel, there is nothing more noble, more important, more admirable that someone can do than keep the country and its citizen safe. You know, it's, it's, it's 
it's uh, every nation, every people is working also according to past traumas. I think that there is nothing from the past that impact our present and future than the Holocaust. And I'm not talking about any political propaganda that this lady or the other is is using it for. But because of of the trauma of the Holocaust, whether it's true or not, but people in Israel are convinced that there will always be someone out there who is trying to perform second annihilation, that the others, so non, uh, non-Jews, will, well, in the best case, stand aside and do nothing, and that we need to have a safe heaven, we need to have uh, uh, a refuge, we need to have Israel, and defend that with every mean possible. Now, when this is the mindset, again, true or not, I'm not trying to judge this per uh, some kind, you know, historical true uh, test, but true or not, if this is the mindset, then the person who prevents a second annihilation or prevents threat is perceived as the custodian, as the gatekeeper, as the, as the, as they, you know, you remember Star Trek, Larry, the <laughs> yes. um, space voyage. So it starts with the narrator says space is the final frontier. And I think the people of the Israeli intelligence community, and this is what makes them different, unique, and in many cases more effective than any other intelligence community in the world. They see themselves as the final frontier, as the custodians, the gate, as those the standing on the gates and defending Israel's national security and lives of Israelis and Jews worldwide. When you convince those people that their story is important and that they that nobody need, nobody knows about that and and, and the, in many cases it works to get them to tell you the stories and you know as it goes some of the sources were not very enthusiastic to give me or to tell me the story and, and sometimes i did to i did to them one uh, one you know a trick that uh, um makes every israeli ballistic which is um is uh, you know coincidentally while talking with them i t- i said something like uh, well you know that other person he's taking credit for that operation <laughs> wow um there's a there's a, a term in hebrew slang uh, called fire fire how would you say like the highest level of sucker right never be a sucker so there's nothing there's nothing that the israelis hates more than being a sucker than being a fire so almost always when I say something like that, the, the person said, ah, he said he was in Syria undercover. Now I will tell you everything. Um, and so, so, so this is the layer of convincing people to talk. Then trying to make sure that you're not being manipulative. The, the only way to work around that is to interview as many people as possible not telling them about each other, creating the a massive, massive database, 
um, and collecting as many documents that were created in real time as possible. Fortunately for me, many of those veterans forgot in their private possession <laughs> many documents when they retired. And um, when you have, again, abundant, a huge database, and you are able to corroborate um, narratives and try to identify the discrepancies. Sometimes it's just uh, just natural. You know, one of the former chiefs of uh, of Mossad, uh, Tamir Pardo, uh, he, he said, Ronan, I, I must ask you, how come, like, how you write your books or your stories? Sometimes I get operatives coming to update, to debrief after doing something, let's say, a week ago in Iran. <laughs> and I have eight people with nine versions. Now, they are not lying. But it just, you know, subjectively, it creates, even a week later, it creates a, a, a Rashomon effect. So, and, and, it, and it's true, you know, everyone has his own view of, of things, view of uh, the, the points uh, the, and, and how things happen. And, um, and you just need to identify those, um, those parts that, that do not overlap uh, and, and maybe tell them to the, the reader and say, listen, there are a few, few versions here. Now, what is unique to Israel is that the, I would say, the, the consensus in Israeli society is that those things should be kept secret. And there is, in the balance between national security and the freedom of, of the, the right of the people to know and transparency of the, um, the executive branch, in Israel, it's always in favor of national security. And this, the, this, this atmosphere of the old boys' guard that keep everything among them, that... Um, um, doesn't tell anyone, in many cases prevails on the values of democracy. And as a reporter trying to interview those people, it is very hard to convince them to, to talk. Now, in order to keep that secret, the state have series of laws and legislations. Right. Some of them just absorbed from the British main mandate from 1935. Unbelievable that the Israeli Israeli law has laws that were legislated to the to the natives and the colonies by His Majesty. We are the colonies yeah? uh, in 1935, um, and so one of them is the military censorship. Now, I'm going to say something, Neri, that many of your hundreds of thousands of listeners worldwide would think I am bluffing, but <laughs> I'm saying in advance, it's not a bluff. The military censorship requires all the um, media channels, um, outlets, journalists, not just citizens of Israel, but based in Israel, to give it for pre-scrutiny everything they intend to publish on national security, intelligence, um, military, foreign relations in, you know, a detailed topic list of 22 um, uh, subjects. And they have the right to, according to the Israeli law, to 
look at that and delete or change or edit or alter prior to publication. This is the only country in the West that still has this kind of uh, pre-publication um, scrutiny mechanism. And in addition, every news magazine, TV news magazine, has a representative of military censorship sitting in its control room with his or her finger on the red button ready to stop the broadcast in case someone is saying something forbidden. Wow. I didn't even know that. And um, they even, in old times, they even had, um, when the phone lines, the international phone lines were uh, rare, and most of the journalists had their phone lines from uh, Bet Sokolov, uh, the house of the journalist in Tel Aviv. In the basement, they had a, a, a base, a small, a small team that was listening to all the communication going from the house of the journalist outside to the world. They were listening, and in many cases, uh, the censor in shift would just um, speak over the over the phone the phone call and say. Uh, Mr. Representative of CBS, you just said something that you should not speak. Please stop or I will cut the conversation. <laughs> Unreal. Um, now, this is gone, but of course, because it's just impossible to monitor all those. But but it, it's very hard to publish or, or, or publish what you believe needs to be published and respect the right of the public to know and the need for transparency of the, exec the executive branch while having people from um, military censorship, which I think are always very honest, maybe even naive in their approach. I think they really believe that everything they do is for the national security of Israel. But truth is, I believe that in many cases it's just for some of the entities of Israeli intelligence trying to cover up um, their uh, failures. And in any case, in the balance between national security and other values of democracy, sometimes it should be tipped for other values of democracy, even if you pay some price in national security. And um, very hard to... Um, very hard to to deal with uh, with that as an underlayer, but you know at the end of, and and also of course the prosecution of sources. Um, I I signed the the um, contract with Random House, Pingu Random House, to write the book on Mossad in um, June of two thousand and ten, but negotiations started much earlier, and um, just a month afterwards there was already. Um, a special meeting in Mossad conveyed to discuss ways to stop me from writing the book. Fortunately, I think that um, I would say this without consider being considered not uh, not very modest. I think that in many cases I had my I had the upper hand with getting the information out, getting the sources speak, dealing with censorship, and um, being able to publish what I wanted to publish and I thought should be published about the history and current affairs of Israeli intelligence community. So that's a great transition. Uh, 
your book, Rise and Kill First, uh, came out in 2018. Uh, I actually used the pandemic last year to to finally read it. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Ah, it was you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've told you this before, and it's not just because you agreed very kindly to come on the podcast, but I, it's really a fed, tremendous piece of work. Thank you. Massive, massive book, but really, really readable. Uh, and it flows really well. Um, I think it also became a bestseller, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm not yep. just the only one who thinks this way, obviously. I wanted to ask you, you know, you touched on your process and, and your career, but where did the idea really for the book come from? Uh, was it material, you know, before you signed the contract with, with Random House? Was it material that you had already collected? Uh, was the idea just a very basic kind of a history of the Mossad? Or did it, from the start, take the form of uh, a real focus on Israel's targeted assassinations, uh, which is the, the subtitle of the book? Well, I was, um, I was thinking for a long time to write a story. That's my seventh book. But um, I was aiming to do something more comprehensive about Israeli intelligence with no real shape yet. Um, then in um, early 2010... I uh, received an email, sorry, 2011. I received an email from um, Random House, then working in a corporation with uh, GQ to do something. Um, and they wanted to have a story of um, the, the history of the Mossad. I thought this is a little bit too much and not focused enough. And I suggested this was following an idea from uh, uh, Shachar Alterman, who was then the editors of my book in Hebrew, to have something dealing uh, with the history of the use of um, assassinations and targeted killings by the Israeli intelligence community. This was after the the failure of killing, the very public failure of killing uh, a Hamas operative in uh, in Dubai, Mahmoud al-Mabkhukh, where um, he was dead, uh, but everybody in the world could see the footage of uh, Mossad operatives that was collected by CCTV, CCTV cameras um, and presented by the chief of the Dubai police. Uh, massive, massive embarrassment to, to Israel. The famous uh, tennis, tennis outfits and the hotels yes. in Dubai. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the story, I did the report for GQ called the Dubai job, um, which was, uh, I think that the sort of a, the basic demonstration of what such a book can look like. Um, and then uh, I think Random has got excited and you asked the right question. Did you have everything in your archive with, or you existed or you did more reporting? So when Random has asked me, how long will it take? I said, uh, Andy, I'm very strict with deadlines and I always know how long something will take me to, to write, to report, investigate and, and write. And um, it will take me a year because I thought I have everything in my archive. I'm going to you know, just bring it, uh, maybe have a little bit of additional reporting and then write uh, nothing too serious. And he said, a year? Are you, are you sure? He said, because that's very, very, very short uh, for a book. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm very strict with deadlines. So in order just not, f you know, making sure that I'm not in breach of the contract, 
they wrote a year and a half. And after that, and I told them, listen, you can write whatever you want. It's going to take me a year. I'm very strict with deadlines. <laughs> and after that, I was six years delayed. <laughs> so very strict with the deadline. Now, it happened before because I, of course, I um, overestimated um, my archive and underestimated why what I still have to uncover. But it, it happened because of two other reasons. One of them is that at a certain point, I decided to disregard almost everything that was written on Israeli intelligence communities that far and on Mossad because I found most of it just didn't make sense without footnotes, without references, without attribution to uh, identified sources. It was looking at this um, Almost all of it was just, you know, like like catching an air in a balloon or or shooting an arrow in a in a in a cloud. Just you know, you you don't know what to do with it. Believe it, not believe it. So I decided to start to start from scratch, interview everybody from the beginning by myself, and hopefully not just bring the stories that everybody already know in a true fashion, but bring new stories, which with you know my vanity and hubris i thought there are none i thought that they're like dealing so many years with the israeli intelligence community i there's no of course i don't know about any break into any embassy in the world but like the major stories i already know and the 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 work that took 8 years the book was published in january late january 2018 we're celebrating four years now. Exactly. Thank you. Um, the book that take that took eight years taught me a serious lesson of humility, because I first it turned out that I was right. When you take out the known stories, you disassemble them to their electrons, and you assemble you reassemble them based on my reporting. You, you come up with something totally different. That now it makes sense. It's reasonable. People, now you understand why people did what they did. Second, it turns out that there are like very important events in the history of intelligence community, the history of Israeli history, in the history of Israel, the history of the, the Middle East that I didn't know of. And some of them were not just two people going to kill someone. Some of them were with the participant, the participation of hundreds. You know, the the Ariel Sharon, 1982, giving the Israeli Air Force an order to take out a commercial airline flying over blue water in the Mediterranean because Arafat, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, was on board and killing hundreds of civilians. Suspected to be on board. Yeah, well, in one case, or even suspected, he was not even on board. But but there were other cases where he 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 was on board, and and still, and then the 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 leadership, the supreme command of the Israeli Air Force, rebelling against him and making sure this this will not happen, and and this will not stay in Israel history forever. No, this is a story that many people in Israel that participated in that part or the other part of you know the chain of command and the air force and the command and control and collection of intelligence. Nobody, nobody spoke about this with anyone until I I had that um, that senior officer in 2012 telling me the story, and then I went for 
further reporting and got documents, etc. So at the end of the day, I was fortunate throughout those eight years to get the known stories, get the fact right, with portray- which portrays them in a very different way, and also get many, many new stories. And at the end, I think the the overall outcome now paints the Israeli intelligence history not just as a as a like a sequence as a series of random events of that killing or that sabotage or that uh installing of a wiring device but put everything in context it's not just people doing things they are doing it because it has a much wider political and historical and social context um which i hope you you tell me i hope is um now making more sense uh, when reading rising king yeah i i was struck aside from the uh almost like you said james bond like operations that you detail uh very well that it's almost like a a security history or an intelligence history of the middle east uh through the targeted assassination campaigns of various israeli intelligence services not just the mossad that it really you take you take the reader from even before Israel was created uh almost up to the present day and it's it's a history and and an operational uh story because yeah th- th- this was at the end this was what i decided and when again eight years six years delayed uh to the original deadline andy ward uh received the draft i think he was already desperate i thought he will never see it But when he received that, he said, Ronan, you actually wrote the history of Israel and the history of the Middle East for, for, for that thing. Because nothing, especially not in such a small place like Israel, nothing happens in a, in a vacuum or in a different planet. You know, the, the, um, the, the, the hunt of Mossad against the German Nazi, former Nazi um, scientists working in Egypt developing missiles for Nasser in the 60s. Of course, that has, you know, the, this, this correspond with the trauma of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And, and of course, it also dials into the current, current in the 60s relations between Israel and Germany and the internal politics of Israel that while people like Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion or Shimon Peres or Moshe Dayan thought that Israel should build a new relationship with what Ben-Gurion called a new Germany and, and, and use, facilitate the compensation coming from Germany to build the IDF, there were people of a more, I would say, you can say conservative or radical view, like the uh, Golda Meir or the, the, the chief of Mossad, Isar Har-El, or Menachem Begin, who thought we, Israel should not have any kind of um, connection with Germany and that it, they, they should use the, the fact that they are German scientists in Egypt to work against Ben-Gurion and break any kind of new connection with, uh, with, with Germany. So what is happening in Egypt Has a profound impact not just on that but also on on the relationship between the current relationship with between Israel and Germany and about and, and, and on German politics and about and on Israeli politics which everything just makes it by far so more interesting right uh, I agree uh, Rona I have to ask this question because it occurred to me also while I was reading the book 
was there ever a point when you were uh, reporting, researching the book that you that you came across an operation that you almost didn't believe was true, that left you thinking, "Wow, I can't." I can't believe they actually pulled this off. I I hate to say, you know, your favorite operation or assassination, because that's not the right term, but the most impressive operation or assassination that you came across and that you wrote about. Um, well, there, there were many. I already mentioned one that d- didn't happen. Um, the story of how Ariel Sharon ordered to take out the commercial airline and then the command of the Air Force rebelling against him was so amazing so new, so dramatic, that at first, even even though I had full trust and confidence in the person who told me that, um, was the first, the, 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 one, the, the first to tell me that, um, I, I said, ah, can, that cannot be. Um, but that person conditioned to tell me the story was only, he said, I'm going to tell you but only you are allowed to to write about that only if you go to the that other senior officer of the air force former of course and he will tell you that with permission to use his name the other officer's name and i said but how can this guy would never speak he hates journalists so my source said uh, i don't care that's my condition so i had to keep that and i went to see the other officer and I didn't say, I didn't tell him why I, why I am there. And I started to, you know, go around that, you know, ask about the use of the Air Force for counterterrorism and then how the Air Force participated in the invasion to Lebanon in 1982, which the fact that it, it led to the uh, expulsion of, of um, Arafat and his people from, uh, from Beirut led to the second operation because Arafat was... Uh, flying from one place to another to recruit uh, support for the PLO. Um, and then at a certain point, that general looks at me and said, Ronan, why are you really here? And so I had no choice, and I just I told him. I told him, I'm, I'm here because I heard that this, this happened. And then he looks at me. His gaze changed. And he said, you know, for 30 years, this was, nine, this was 2012, so 30 years after the invasion to Lebanon, for 30 years, I have been waiting for someone to come and ask me this question. And he stands up and says, don't move. And this is like a firm, looks like a firm Austro-Hungarian general. So when he tells you not to move, you don't move. <laughs> and he walks. It's a huge, huge office overlooking Tel Aviv in one of the skyscrapers. And he walks to the other side, to the other side of the room. He moves um, a chair, then he moves a painting, and behind the painting there is a safe, like in the movies. And he opens the safe, then he pulls out a folder, and he comes back, and in that folder there are all the documents related to Operation Goldfish, the attempt to take out Arafat airplane, with handwritten notes from the chief of staff and the log of the the operation and the tail number of the airplane that they were supposed to take out. And not to do any spoiler, it's all in chapter uh, 16. But um, when someone reads that, you might wonder how come I got so like the, the precise details. So they are taken from the, 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 the documents that 
he kept in his position for so many years. Um, you asked me about, you know, favorite is not, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's a good word here because at the end of the day, we need to keep in mind, uh, we are talking about operations that um, people die during uh, and either as targets or as operative and, and the collateral damage there was a German scientist who was abducted by Mossad in 1962. And many years later, when the book was published in Germany, uh, 2018, I went to speak with his daughter and son. She was five, he was three years old, and I was the first one to come to tell them what happened to their father, which is a horrible story. And then I saw the the collateral damage you see people of course much older but the the father vanished when they were little kids and i'm not talking about whether he was guilty or not you know he was a nazi during the war and uh, mossad had no no real difficult i would say no um, remorse of 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 executing him and dropping his body to the ocean but but i'm looking at those who did nothing and you see the scar that was burned that day in November of 1962 and never healed. Um, and, a, and if if needing to choose one operation, which I think is the most complicated and extraordinary and mind-blowing, um, then I would choose the 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 killing of Imad Bounia, the uh, military commander of Hezbollah, on the uh, 12th of February 2008 in Damascus. Now, this guy was a phantom. Mossad didn't even have a photograph of him other than the one taken uh, over the TWA flight in, 2000, in sorry, 1985. And he was by far the most capable, talented, smart, and diabolic terrorist in the history of mankind. He really changed the history of the Middle East and made Hezbollah into a regional superpower. And it, you know, uh, the most wanted person in the world, the longest manhunt, manhunt in history, which ended up in a, in, a, in a joint NSA, CIA, Mossad, Israeli military intelligence operation that started in late 2006 and ended in. Uh, that day, sunny day in Damascus in 2000 and, uh, in uh, 2008. And this was also why when um, HBO and uh, Cashat International um, decided to do a TV series, a scripted TV series following Rise and Kill, I recommended the, the, the life and death of, um, of Imad Mounir. And uh, it will take some time because of COVID, but I, I hope that uh, sooner than later we'll have we can see this on on HBO. I think we're all looking forward to that. Uh, and right, Imad Mounia also responsible for the bombings in Beirut against uh, U.S. forces, the U.S. Marines, uh, the U.S. Embassy in the early 1980s. So right, and also Israeli Embassy in 1980 in Buenos Aires in 1992, uh, the AMIA, the Jewish Community Center in 1994. Right, a long and horrible and bloody um, history. And uh, when you look at this operation, of course, you also get 
the the more um, the the, the uh, so sort of uh, anecdotes and behaviors uh, of of uh, the the operatives as much as of Monia himself, uh, because one of the reasons he was in Damascus was not just because he wanted to evade Mossad assassins and thought that he's much well guarded in Damascus, but also because um, he had uh, some personal reasons. He had three Sunni mistresses in Damascus. Right. And uh, apart from his legal Shiite wife and uh, one of the commanders of the SIGIN cyber team of 8200, the Israeli NSA, who was in charge of monitoring his communication, his movement, he said to me, you, you know, you, you cannot imagine, this, is, this guy is the most um, notorious terrorist in history. The Middle East is terrified of him. You cannot imagine how much time he devoted to try to keep all those four women calm because one of them threatened that she's going to commit suicide if he doesn't leave his wife for her. The other one threatened that she will try take a taxi from Damascus to uh, Beirut and tell his wife what is happening in Damascus. His wife herself thought that maybe it's not just for work in Damascus and said that she's coming. And, and, and you know, this guy from Israeli military intelligence, he said, the only times when I, th- when I, I felt that he is afraid was when one of those women was on the screen calling him. <laughs> they, by the way, um, this, this group, um, because he had four women, one in um, Beirut and three in Damascus, their code name for the operation was for wedding and a, we- and a funeral. That is uh, fantastic. Very, very appropriate. Uh, Ronen, just to tie up uh, this part about the book, um, from my reading, the, the argument put forward in the book uh, at the very end definitely is that you, know, you have this, this history of all these uh, impressive operations, this aggressive use of force uh, by Israel. Uh, you know, some were successful, some definitely not. Uh, but at the end, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that the use of force really is no genuine replacement for for diplomacy, for for genuine statesmanship. Uh, you know, you give examples too in the book where you have the assassination of uh, the PLO military chief Abu Jihad in Tunisia in 1988. Uh, you know, it didn't kill off the PLO, and you eventually get Hamas. Uh, you have. It's a famous example now. The Hezbollah Secretary General uh, Abbas Musawi was assassinated by Israel in Lebanon in 1992. It's now the 30-year anniversary. Uh, but then we got Hassan Nasrallah, arguably a much more capable and dangerous enemy. Right. Uh, and even you know all the sabotage operations uh, inside Iran against the Iranian nuclear program, one could make the argument that it only spurred Iran to go even faster in terms of its own nuclear development. So. Would you say that's a fair characterization of the book? Well, at the very end, the the bottom line. You know, um, we spoke yesterday, and uh, and um, I you asked me what is my opinion, and I and I um, I said my opinion is not there because I I think that the that the stories and the narrative um, are so important, mind blowing 
crazy telling uh horrible whatever whatever term you decide you choose and i don't need to be there um people are writing parts of the draft uh, said there's no author's voice and i and i always believe i don't need to be there's no there's no need to be an author's voice i keep away no first person um and i'm distant and cold um of course i'm not cold personally i just keep very very professionally professional distant presence from what i write about and i'm trying to do that even you know with myself because some some of the events are really dramatic um and so i i leave the decision to or uh, the, the 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 shaping of you to each of the readers whether it's good or bad but one of the the things one of the reason why i do not have an author's voice was because it's also that and and the other there's no bottom clear bottom line to everything because you will find cases in the book where the extensive use of targeted killing um changed things in the way that israeli intelligence and um uh, political leaders wanted to to change the the reason the only thing that could stop the suicide bombers during the second intifada so to the years 2000 to 2004 the only thing that could really stop the suicide bombers, something that was considered and still considered by many people in the world as unstoppable weapon. How do you stop a person who is willing to die? Doesn't need any kind of, of, of uh, training. The only thing he needs to do is cross a board, cross the, the, the line, cross the border and aboard a bus or, or enter a shopping mall and, and, and move the switch from off to on. How do you stop it? But the only thing that stopped those people from coming was when Israel started to target and kill their commanders. And so the commanders, while willing to uh, send thousands to their death under the, the suicide bombers or the victims, when the the price tag was attached to their lives, they thought, well, maybe we won't die today. And it stopped. So there are those cases. On the other hand, there are cases where Israel, as you mentioned, Israel killed leaders. Um, there's always the question between us historians whether um, what what makes history change is, is it leaders? Uh, uh, whether I know uh, uh, if if uh, von Stauffenberg would put the bomb in the other side of that table and kill Hitler that day in Operation Valkyrie, would that change the history of the war? I, I believe it would. Or is it people changing, or is it phenomena, social phenomena, or or, uh, or or politics? But when killing leaders, it turns out that history does change, but not necessarily in the direction that uh, that uh, the Israeli intelligence wanted it to to change. And so, after killing Sheikh Yassin, for example, the founder, the, the spiritual compass of Hamas, um, Iran got much more involved in Hamas. Uh, there was no Sheikh Yassin to stop them, and uh, Hamas got so much stronger and conquered the the Gaza Strip. So, so there's no one answer, but there is one thing that I believe a lesson that I believe people in Israel, as well as any other place in the world, maybe especially in the U.S., um, needs to take out from that I'm taking from the book, and that is. 
you know, there's, uh, I have a friend and, and journalist that I admire, Tim Weiner, who wrote a book about the history, I think the best book about the history of the CIA, Legacy of Ashes, where the bottom line is that whatever the CIA did is a legacy of ashes. Now, I, I, I'm sure that the CIA doesn't think so and uh, maybe was insulted, but the history of the Israeli intelligence is more or less the opposite, meaning they did, not everything was glorified and, and not everything was a success, but at the end of the day, Israeli intelligence sooner or later found a solution to every challenge that the political leaders of Israel presented it. And I think that this was of unbelievable, amazing tactical successes. But that those tactical successes have led the political leaders, and I'm not referring to a specific one, but all of them, to the belief that at the tip of their fingers, this is, there's this exotic capability of shadow war behind enemy lines that can solve everything and change everything. And that while true, they have this kind of Israeli intelligence under their command has this kind of, of capability. But I think that what they are missing, that there is a, there's a line after which force cannot solve everything. And that those political leaders used force instead of understanding that after using force, the winner has an obligation to turn to other means like diplomacy, like corresponding with the other side. And it means that in a democracy entail a risk for, for this politician because he might fail. It's much easier to send Mossad or operatives of military intelligence to assassinate someone like Abu Jihad, Khalil al-Wazir in Tunis, instead of saying, let's try and correspond, let's try to negotiate. And so while the book is a story about really unbelievable, many not told before stories about successes and, 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 and operations and targeted killings with the, of course, the moral and legal doubts into them. But it's a success. It's a story about successes. It's also a story about major strategic threats and failures of political leaders that were not willing and are, not, and are still not willing to take the risk and use other means of communicating with the enemy that might have a chance to have just a different Middle East. Right. Uh, Renan, before we let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't turn to some current events. Uh, you and your colleague Mark Mazzetti at the New York Times uh, put out this long article in the New York Times Magazine last month about uh, the NSO Group, which is this Israeli uh, cyber company. It's become rather rather notorious over the past year or two, uh, along with its uh, offensive cyber weapon called Pegasus, which is able to uh, remotely hack into and take control of uh, essentially every smartphone in the world. Uh, the magazine article was called The Battle for the World's Most Powerful Cyber Weapon. So give us the Cliff Notes version uh, behind, behind the article and the reporting behind the article uh, really, to my mind, there were two main takeaways that I could see. Uh, number one, how Israel has used uh, this very, very powerful cyber weapon as kind of a, a diplomatic calling card or a sweetener all around the world, both in terms of its relations with democracies and other countries which are definitely not democracies. Uh, and that also, as you as you reported in the article, that the U.S. actually dabbled 
uh, with this very powerful cyber weapon. Well, um, again, not doing a spoiler, I invite everybody to read um, the story Mark and I wrote. But very generally, I think we have read many stories with more or less the same narrative about how NSO sold Pegasus, the most powerful cyber weapon in the world, the one that can hack into the spying device that each one of us is carrying in uh, her or his pocket, the Android or iPhone, uh, and basically get control over our lives. And p- part of the, as part of the more than a year reporting for the story, um, we also saw how, like, a demonstration of Pegasus. And it's mind-blowing and scary at the same time. You know, it takes like between two and three minutes to get... You You and Mark yourself saw a demonstration of Pegasus? Yes. Um, myself with, with another member of the team of the New York Times. Uh, Mark was in another country. Um, we saw the attack while also looking at the screen of the attacked phone. And you don't see anything on the screen. It's a zero-click attack. It takes between two and three minutes to um, get total control over the phone. And then on the monitors of the, the operative, the cyber operative, you have the whole uh, breakdown of the components of the content of the phone. The apps, the, uh, the pictures the voice messages and so you have the past meaning everything stored already and everything that is happening in real time and you can open the microphone of the phone just to listen what is happening in the room and the camera to have snapshots and it takes between 45 minutes to an hour to do what the professional jargon is called a dump meaning to copy the whole content of the phone onto the um, the operative computer. And it's, it's, you understand, of course, we knew the capabilities before, but seeing that is a demonstration better than anything else of, of how intrusive the, the weapon is. Now, I think what we did in this, hopefully, was to try to maybe have a better, like, zoom out from the stories which are very important by themselves of those tyrannic regimes buying Pegasus from NSO with the license of Israeli Ministry of Defense and then using them against the civil society of their country, journalists, human rights activists, political dissidents, etc. And first to really examine the claims from NSO that there are many intelligence services and law enforcement agencies in the world who claim to do so-called good things with that because as much as the civil society of, of, uh, of a country is using um, the instant app applications um, as a mean of communication, which is a safe haven because it's military-grade encryption and there is no available spy tool uh, to... Uh, look into this communication except for Pegasus. But in the same way, criminals, pedophiles, um, um, drug traffickers, uh, terrorists are also using it because they understand that they can get away with using those means of communication. 
which also brings the 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 the, the question of responsibility. There's a court case in um, in California where Facebook and its company WhatsApp sued NSO, saying that NSO is responsible for what was done with its products by its clients. You know, I can find uh, this claim somewhat reasonable if if uh, if if someone is selling. A spy tool like Pegasus to Saudi intelligence, a country with known uh, record of massive abuse of human rights. Or, as we uncovered, the CIA is paying NSO to and coordinating the sale to give a Pegasus to the Djiboutian. Uh, intelligence service, Djibouti, one of the countries with the most horrible record of respect for human rights, according to the State Department. In East Africa. If you do something like that, and the Israeli Ministry of Defense is licensing this, this is like the the uh, the owner of a zoo that lets loose the most hungry lion, and then when the lion eats someone, he says, I don't know, it's it's the lion's fault. Right. Of course it's the lion's fault, but it's also the, 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 the zookeeper uh, fault. Um, so at the same time, looking at this responsibility, someone also can, one can question the issue of responsibility of the, of the companies like, uh, Signal or, um, um, WhatsApp or Telegram or BBM at that time, uh, Blackberry, how, what sort of responsibility they have to keep their channel safe and clean from terrorism? And, um, and organized crime. And so those are part of what we have tried to do. And at the same time, of course, uncovering what, for me, at the beginning, when I, we first heard about that, was amazing to the extent of unbelievable how, what is, how, how deep and extensive was the interest of the American intelligence community to buy Pegasus and get hold of Pegasus. And, and, and part of it was because um, they failed or parts of American intelligence community failed to have uh, to develop their own Pegasus. We had um, reported, we have reporting about uh, this uh, American cyber company called Boldent that was trying to develop the American Pegasus that can hack into uh, WhatsApp and worked for some time and then uh, failed. Um, Interesting to say that uh, Bolden, one of the main investors, is Peter Thiel, who is also one of the main owners of Facebook and uh, was a member of the board until two days after we published our story. And now he he quit um, for unclear reasons, and um, and so that's the same Facebook that owns WhatsApp. Um, so this is not just a story about that company from Herzliya that produced something that is very valuable for many countries and also made the uh, U.S. government very upset to the extent of blacklisting them. This is a company and a story about a cyber weapon that became a main tool for Israel to advance its national security and foreign secret foreign policy goals, while at the same time the core of a struggle between Israel and the U.S., 
on who will control this powerful weapon and who will have the authority to give permission to sell it to other countries. Hmm. I, um, I think there are still reportings that we pursue, not yet uh, published. Um, hint, hint. Um, and no spoilers. This is a story that is far from over. Uh, let's say that um, NSO, which is on the brink of bankruptcy because of the American blacklisting, let's say that NSO uh, collapses tomorrow. Uh, what would happen with its clients? Who will get who from whom they will buy? Um, and also, what would happen to this uh, this nucleus of knowledge and of hackers? Where would where will they go? Uh, and who will own their services? Um, what will happen in America uh, if you know, is this, is this just a, a, a war America declared against NSO or maybe there are going to be more companies instead in addition to NSO and Candiro that was that were already blacklisted uh, from the 19 different offensive cyber companies in Israel. So much to see to see unfolding in that uh, very very interesting story. It is fascinating. Intelligence uh, and cyber weapons and the murky world of uh, Israeli foreign relations, uh, including, like you mentioned, Saudi Arabia, which uh, you and Mark delved into in the article. Uh, Saudi Crown Prince uh, MBS calling up Bibi Netanyahu and asking him to turn back on uh, his Pegasus software. Yep. And threatening that if he doesn't, then Saudi will take Step. This is just, just another proof that that phone conversation that created a lot of waves the, when we published it in Israel is just another proof of how important this um, this machine, this uh, this spy weapon is. Um, it's just you know important enough for MBS to call uh, Netanyahu and and to to some extent even threaten him that if he doesn't renew the license, then Saudi will take steps against Israel. Fascinating. Uh, Ronen, thank you so much for your time. We went over, actually, what we had anticipated. Uh, so hopefully we'll have you back on again, maybe uh, ahead of the launch of the HBO series uh, about Rise and Kill First and at least the story of Imad Mugnia to start off with. Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Nur. It was my pleasure and honor. Be well. Okay, that was Ronen Bergman. Many thanks to him for his very generous time. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>